Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage or in these troubled times over the internet. At Profile Theater, we spend an entire season exploring the work of a given playwright. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. First up, the director of Profile's production of King of the Yees, Lava Alapai. Lava is a director whose work has been seen at the Artist Repertory Theater, Portland Center Stage, at the Armory, and recently at Portland Opera. Welcome. All right, folks. I am here with one Lava Alapai. Lava Alapai is a much respected member of the Portland theater community. Um, a stunning actor, oh uh, <laughs> great singer, and oh my God. actually one of the best singers I ever heard. <laughs> um, uh, but also a really well respected and well rounded and um, accomplished director. Who's uh, in you know in, your, in the shows I've seen? You've been very versatile um, and very precise, um, uh, and you do really clean work. And I appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so here you are on King of the Yees. Uh, can you um, first tell me a little bit about King of the Yees and um, what you think about the show? Yeah. Um... I read, I started reading King of the Yees um, back when it was on New Play Exchange and they had like a little sample of it and it was a scene between actors one and two and they were talking about kind of the, um, kind of the disposal aspect or, or the, the interchangeability of Asian actors and that, uh, and, and Lauren makes a huge joke uh, uh, about it and, and and I could not stop laughing. I I was on the floor. So I started to seek her work out a little bit more and started to read King of the Yees um, uh, as a whole. And I just fell in love with her work. And that was that was my way into Lauren Yee's work. Um, and it was on my my list of plays that at some point in my life I want to do. And um when I read the whole thing, I really identified with the 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 aspect of family and and the expectations of culture and expectations of family and um, and what the 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 previous generation expects on the new generation and what this generation might expect of the next. So this this kind of familial cyclical shenanigans that we all seem to get in ourselves into is is how I got into the play and and why I love it so much because I identify so much being um being from an Asian family and having those same kind of expectations put on me. Um and what have been some of the special things that have come through in the process that have surprised you maybe? I was really surprised my cast it's it's weird how the the people who need to do the play finds their way to do the play and uh this cast specifically the first day we sat down and we kind of talked about it um each one of us has a very personal connection to what Lauren is saying in the play and we all sat around the table laughing and crying on the very first day. And I thought to myself, you know, as a, as a director, you go through a casting process and you have these things that you, you have to do um, to get the play up in the first place. And, but when you sit around the table with the actors, cause you don't really have a lot of time with them when you're in the, you know, in the casting process, it's like, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes, 30 minutes at a time in the whole, but you really sit down with these actors on the first read and you really get to know who they are as people. And the people that are in this play need, needed to be in this play. Like they, they found 
their way here um, because they they do have a, a deep connection and something to say. And it wasn't just about, um, you know, I mean, doing a play and being paid for it. It probably has something to do with it, <laughs> but uh, they really connected with this play uh, on a deeper level. And, and I think you can see that with uh, the, the chemistry that the, the cast has. You uh, talked about the, um, the actors feeling a personal connection to what Lauren E was trying to say. Can you give us a, uh, 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 an idea of, of what that is, what Lorne is trying to say without telling us too much about the show or doing <laughs> any thinking for the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, particularly um, Rob who plays, who plays uh, Larry Yee. He is um, a father of daughters and he told us, uh, I won't repeat the story, but um, he tells a personal story about his relationship with his daughters that mirrored, what was happening in the play. Um, and his kids went to UC, which is an Asian joke and it was hilarious. Um, but yeah, each, each actor, um, Maddie, who, who plays, who, who is a character in the play, um, how she, she is often mistaken or questioned about her Asian identity uh, and having to kind of fight for her place in that, uh, in that pattern of identity that, that a lot of um, Asian presenting actors go through. So those are just two examples. Right. Um, uh, for those who might not know, like, like what does that fight look like sometimes? Or is there, Something, or, or you have probably encountered some of that yourself mm, at some point. Yes and no. I think well, my my Asian identity is is actually hidden. Like you, I present. I don't present Asian, and so my my fight uh, in Asian identity is actually feeling like I'm an imp imposter in the room um, because hmm. I I don't look Asian in in you know black rooms great everybody can see that externally but it you know they can't see that that i'm a, a, a japanese immigrant that i came to this country when i was very young and just got my citizenship when i was 17 so you know you you don't see that so i have to actually like almost like fight for my place it, fe it feels that way that i fight for my place in the asian community because i externally i don't where other asians look asian uh but they also have to fight because they're uh, americanized or they don't speak the language or they don't speak the language well enough so there's there's each one of us has a has a, a fight in in our own communities absolutely i i get a little bit of that uh because i'm uh half mexican but like you know like you said like i don't really like people, people don't see that unless i tell them and they're like oh i can see it and, or or since i gained some weight it's like are you samoan you know <laughs> yeah um uh so we talked about some of the the stuff that you that surprised you in the process have there been any, any real challenges or obstacles to overcome um or things that you uh um I don't want to say surprise in a negative way, but you're like, oh, this was uh, a challenge that I wasn't expecting. A challenge that, uh, <laughs> uh, technically, <laughs> there has been some technical challenges that my team has come across that we're trying to solve at the moment. Uh, um, the play itself, the, um, I honestly, I am not a huge fan of intermissions and there is one in this play and I wanted to get rid of it. But, uh, aside from that, no, not really. There, there hasn't been, um, huge challenges. I think my team has, has been really supportive in, in, especially the part of, of cultural competency, because, you know, I am not, I am not Chinese, I'm Japanese. There are similarities in our cultures, but the, the difference there is, of course, language and the specificity in that, because Chinese is a tonal language. And so we've had to um, really partner with the community, uh, the Chinese community, the Cantonese-speaking community, and really uh, invite them in to help us with that, that process. Yeah. And have they been down? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's been amazing. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, because you have uh, li some lion dancing 
involved in the show. Is that is that right? Yeah, Lion Dance comes in and out uh, a couple times. It's it, it's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, I am so I'm jealous that uh, you know as a puppeteer, my puppeteering spirit just went right to the lion, and I wanted to do it myself. Um, but uh, yeah, the, what the cast. It, Heath and Maddie are the are the two that really manipulate the lion and do the lion dance and what they've been able to do with uh, Nick, who is the trainer, uh, lion dance trainer from the. Is Lee that the guy who runs the lion dance troupe? Yeah, yeah, he uh, part of the Lee Association. Um, he has a lion dance team that came in and really guided us through that process. That sounds awesome. Uh, so um, it sounds like the. Uh, aesthetic of the piece uh feels really like it's gonna be chinese flavored yeah oh yeah it's so chinese flavored it's all chinese flavored oh that's (laughs) that's great that's great um uh so like you know um closing out the process what do you want people to know when, when they're gonna come see the show that the show is 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 for me, um, and I think a lot of people can identify with the uh, identify with the idea that that we spend our youth trying so hard to detach from our family and our traditions and all of that and run away and and do our own thing and move to New York and whatever it is we do, and we and then there comes a certain point in our lives. Um, just at the point where we can't stay up past eight o'clock at night, that you start to really want to reconnect. You mean as an adult, you can't yeah. stay up. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, we start to reconnect or want to reconnect with that. We, we And I think those of us who have a strong uh, cultural background, we, we start to seek that out as we get older. And, and this is kind of what this pieces for me is that 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 like youthful struggle and that and it's right to want to detach and go away and learn your own things but then as you get older you start to like want to reconnect with your culture and and you start to maybe revisit the language and revisit the foods and all the things that you ate as a child and 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 you try to find that way back you try to journey your way back in and so I think that's what that's what the audience will take away is is that you're you're no matter how far you go you're really never that far from from that piece of you. Man, it sure feels like it though. You know, it's and it's funny. Like I feel like, uh, um, especially like uh, just recently, like since you know post pandemic. You know, I myself have been going through a kind of journey where I've been like you know reaching out to family and. You know, and just like, um, and like, and like, I think you're right. I think so many people will relate to the idea of like that, that, that era in your life, that period in your life where your, your big struggle is to be your own individual, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and, yeah. and then you're like, um, what is the value in what I have left behind? Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, and then you, you mix that up in your own way. You kind of, you kind of, you know, uh, do a mashup. And then it becomes its own thing, and you pass those traditions on to, you know, if you have a family. Um, and of course, our generation and the generation after us, <laughs> the millennials and the whatever that comes next after that, uh, they're starting to think, why have a family? They don't need to have a traditional, what looks like a traditional family. Uh, so it's interesting what their perspective is. The 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 kids that I'm working on in the play, they're not kids, they're adults, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But to me, <laughs> it's that um, the way they look at the formation of family has ch- changed uh, quite a bit. And it's lovely. It's lovely that w- what's happening now. And I guess we were always striving for this on some level. Uh, but it sounds uh, like this process has really um, touched you personally. Uh, and would you say um, it's altered your trajectory at all or you know, as, as lava alapai moves forward um is, is your perspective is your are your goals a little different because you worked on this show i 
I have been going through uh, not not necessarily an identity crisis, but kind of a, a reclaiming of my identity. And it's and I am so privileged that I have I'm multicultural, so I have and I have a lot of work to do because I have. <laughs> Not only not only Japanese, but you know I have Hawaiian and I have Black, and all of those cultures are so rich and so dynamic, and I and have so many things to learn um, about my own identity that that it's it's I'm kind of taking taking them one at a time, you know, and I don't get to, because I don't present Asian, I often, uh, don't get to tell Asian stories. Uh, but I grew up in an Asian household. Uh, so, so being able to, in the last two years or so, being able to actually tell the stories I knew growing up or, or, or reflect the people that I saw growing up in, in my own family and in, 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 you know, my neighborhood and pe- people I know, it has been transformational for me. I often, <laughs> I often joke that I didn't grow up with a lot of black people in my life. So I often joke that like when I'm in black rooms, I actually feel out of place more often than not because I I these those are the things that I have to look up and learn more. But when I'm in an Asian in in an Asian story or doing doing things uh, with Asian folks, those things kind of come quicker to me because that's what I grew up with. Um, so it's been it's been a learning experience. So I've been I've been trying to. I've been trying to kind of like reclaim my blackness, reclaim my, my Asian-ness, reclaim my Pacific Islander, you know, all of those Mm -hmm. things. And it's kept me busy, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a busy, it's a busy thing. It's such a specific kind of struggle, you know, that just, just not everybody has, you know, (laughs) you know, okay. Um, Well, Lava Alapai, um, you know, um, this has been very insightful and I, I'm hearing lovely things about your show or I'm hearing that your show is very lovely oh, um, thank you. Uh, or, bo- or both. Um, and I'm really looking forward to see it, to seeing it. Yeah. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> thank you so much, Bobby. We'll be right back with Nick Lee of the Portland Lees Association Lion Dance Team. Next up at Profile Theater, Welcome to Arroyos by Christopher Diaz, author of The Elaborate Entrance of Chad Deity, and directed by myself, Bobby Bermea. After the sudden loss of their mother, Alejandro and his troubled sister Molly must find a way to get by. The bodega their mother ran is closed. The bar, <clears throat> lounge, that Alejandro opened in its place isn't the success it needs to be, and Molly can't seem to keep her graffiti off the city's walls. But... After a friend from the past returns with a strange theory, an urban legend about the origins of hip-hop, things will never be the same. A tale of love, family, hip-hop, street art, and loss unfolds at Oyo's Lounge. I'm thrilled to be directing this incredible play that features an ensemble of young adults, including two DJs who spin live on stage. The show runs February 9th through 26th at Imago, and tickets are on sale now at ProfileTheater.org. Welcome back. Next up is Nick Lee. Nick is one of the coordinators of the Portland Lees Association Lion Dance Team. He also helped teach the actors of King of the Ease how to perform elements of the dance, and he and the rest of the Lion Dance Team performed a three-lion dance on opening night. We are here this afternoon with Nick Lee from the Lee Family Association. Good afternoon, Nick. Hi, thanks uh, for having me here. Really, really glad you came on. Um, So, Nick, what is your uh, title? or your your position with the Lee Family Association here in Portland? Um, I am a coach of the Lion and Dragon Dance Team, um, which is basically the youth group component uh, to the Lee Family Association here in Portland. Um, That sounds like it's amazing. Is it it amazing? It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, How many um, kids do you work with? Um, So we've been... Uh, doing lion dance here in Portland since 2004. So uh, what's that? It's 18 years now. Um, we've been doing it here in Portland. So over the years, um, you know, 
probably hundreds of, of students and kids have come through, um, you know, and over the years we grow and uh, kind of shrink and grow as, you know, students sure. go off to school and college or whatever. Um, so sometimes we have a smaller group of maybe 10 students uh, and then sometimes, well, you know, the group's really big. There's 30, 40 people. Um, Whoa. Yeah. So it, it kind of fluctuates, um, but we have a really good core group um, of members and that, that keeps us going. Now, 18 years, uh, 18 years ago, how old were you? I, I do look young. Um, I'm 40 now. So uh, <laughs> I was already in my 20s, um, my early 20s when I, when I began lion dancing. That was not what I expected you to say. Okay, great. Um, uh, could you tell us a bit about the role the association has played in your own family's lives? Yeah, um, so I, I kind of have to do a little bit of a history uh, lesson. Um, <clears throat> so the Chinese Family Associations um, were created in the late 1800s uh, when the Chinese um, first came to America for the, the gold rush and to build the railroads. Um, and during that time in America, the Chinese didn't have much representation, uh, you know, in legal matters or or many many matters at all so the chinese had to kind of take it upon themselves to create these associations to kind of look after each other find um housing and work when new people came over and um you know kind of uh <clears throat> arbitrate disputes if you know things like that came up in the community so uh, they were really needed back then um but then you know as time went on um and the, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, um, which I should mention was the first and only time the U.S. has ever named a specific race of people that were barred from entering the United States. That lasted from 1882 all the way up until around World War II. Um, so that really also had an effect. Uh, so the Chinese that were here kind of were stuck and they had to uh, create these associations, um, you know, for themselves. Uh, so then fast forward, you know, to, to 1982, 100 years later, when I was born, uh, you know, Chinese Exclusion Act's long gone and we're pretty well assimilated into American culture. So now the associations are more for cultural heritage and cultural traditions. So uh, for me, growing up in the 80s and 90s, the, the family association was all about banquets. It's all about Chinese New Year, um, mid-autumn moon festival, these, these big banquets that we would have at the association or the association would rent out a big uh, restaurant and, and we would have these, these big meals. Um, so that was uh, kind of the extent of it for me growing up. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> there would be scholarships and things like that if you did well in school and you were graduating. But that was kind of the extent of it here in Portland. Well, the San Francisco chapter, which is the West Coast uh, headquarters for the, for the National Lee family, uh, they, they said, hey, well, we got some youth involved here because we started a kung fu and lion dance program. So um, maybe you guys would be interested. So they called up to Portland and they got a hold of my uncle, Terry Lee, and uh, he, he accepted the, the offer. And so Terry and myself and my cousin Eric... Um, kind of started it out. Uh, the San Francisco Association donated two lions and a drum and the and the gong and cymbals that are all part of the, the lion dance performance. And there was an elder here in Portland named Ken Lee who had some lion dance experience from growing up in China. And that was um, the birth of the lion dance team here for Portland Lee Association. Um, <clears throat> and then a couple of years after we started, uh, we wanted to... Uh, get more training. So my uncle and my cousin and I, we went to China and uh, trained with the masters there over in China. Um, and actually, Whoa. I've made two trips to China to study with the masters. And I've also uh, studied with masters from Singapore and Malaysia, who, um, because Singapore and Malaysia have a, a big Chinese diaspora that has a lot of lion dance culture. And <clears throat> they kind of... Uh, changed it a little bit from the traditional form of line dancing to a more contemporary style. So I have uh, received training in both the traditional and the contemporary style. And so to make a long story longer, um, it, it did work. We got more youth involved. Um, and so I think that uh, the, the plan of, of introducing line dance to get the youth more active in the association has, has definitely worked. 
Man, that sounds fantastic. Like that whole that whole journey sounds fantastic. Can you tell me a little, because you said um, uh, you came to it uh, 18 years ago. You were 22. So you hadn't been lion dancing before. Can you give me some idea of what the impact was for you? Like just in that first um, um, experience of, um, you know, coming in uh, or, you know, starting to learn this thing that you have, a, like you have a, like a kind of like a communal history, like, you know, and the kind of guy, you know, culture gets into your genes. Right. Like this actually goes back for you. Uh, how long, like, what was that like to experience that at 22? Right, right. Uh, so I should preface it by saying that lion dancing is martial arts related. Its uh, its base is in martial arts and kung fu, a traditional Chinese kung fu. Um, so traditionally, uh, the martial arts schools, the top students would be the ones who would go out and perform the lion dance, and that would show the community the level of skill that the martial arts school had. Um, so I, I do have a martial arts background, um, I just had never lion danced in the past. Um, so that helped having a martial arts background to introduce, uh, the lion dancing. Um, but yes, it was, uh, difficult at first. We did, we did have our, um, our founder, Ken Lee, who showed us the basics of what he knew. Um, but like I said, the, you know, lion dancing has, has evolved over the years. Um, so there's, there's definitely some some higher level stuff, and that's why we sought out um, the training because uh, the first first couple of years was kind of just winging it and and watching YouTube videos, you know. Um, so it really helped to go to China and seek out the the route, and then to to follow up with the masters from Singapore and Malaysia. That sounds fantastic, and th and now you can convey some of that learning on to the next generation, and um, just a. Uh... The, the the little bit I, that I saw the the at, at the at the show, um, uh, how old how old are your kids generally? Like they all seem like pretty young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so eight is the age that we usually once they're eight years and older, they kind of have the the focus to to stick with it. But they were doing some amazing stuff, you know, and like some stuff was just like artistically, it was, it was um, amazing. Like when the lion went to sleep. Right. And, right. It, and it, I mean, and it looked like, I mean, like, like if, if you had never said that beforehand, I still would have gotten it. Exactly. I, you know, I still would have like, Oh, he just went to sleep and he's, he's like nodding, nodding off. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. And then, uh, like, um, some of them were like, like, got on top of the other one and stood up there and then and then walked around. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of athleticism um, involved. And uh, as you mentioned, with all the dynamic uh, jumping and, and things like that, but then there's the more subtle, like you said, with the sleeping, um, these expressions and emotions, right? So the lion costume is a big head and you can blink the eyes, wiggle the ears and move the mouth. But that's it. Uh, but with those three things, you know, if you flutter the eyes really fast or you slowly close them, right, you can convey all these different emotions. So with the, the skills to control the, the uh, expressions and then with the athleticism for the dynamic moves together uh, makes a really good performance. It, it was it was uh, extraordinary. Um, so. Uh... How how often like how long have those kids been working together like 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 how do you get them to that level of uh, skill and technique? Sure. Um, so actually, I think most of the kids in that group that night uh, have been with me for quite a few years. Um, although you know the caveat of uh, you know the the COVID situation, so uh, they were with me prior to that. But then obviously we shut down for a while. We weren't practicing, you know, when everyone was was staying home and everything. Um, so we had, you know, over a year off, um, and we've, I think we've been back practicing just over a year now. So <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, because like, um, some of that I'm going to, you know, please convey to those young people how extraordinary I thought they were. Like the show was getting, getting ready to start. So I felt like I couldn't be effusive enough. But like, you know, I spent that whole time going, wow, 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 wow. Um, so uh, with this troupe, when do you all perform? Uh, so uh, as I like, mentioned earlier, with the, the main Chinese holidays, we have Chinese New Year. Um, and then we have the Mid-Autumn Moon Festival. Those are the two, you know, New Year's and, and Harvest Fest. Um, 
but lion dancing can happen at any auspicious occasion. So we do a lot of weddings. We do a lot of grand openings of businesses, uh, birthday right. celebrations, uh, you know, so anytime that you want to have good energy or, or get rid of negative energy um, is a good time for lion dance. Um, uh, so that, that sounds like there's a, like a, like a spiritual component. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the way I look at it for me, lion dance is an art, uh, sport and a religion, you know, for some people it may be one of those things or none of those things, you know, it depends on the individual, but for me it's an art because it's a traditional cultural heritage that has been passed down. There are specific ways to do things and we've been taught those ways and we want to preserve them. Um, it's a sport because, as I mentioned, it's very dynamic and there's a lot of athleticism involved. Um, and it's, you know, it's an entertaining thing as well. Um, and then there's the re religious aspect. Um, you know, you could call it quasi-religious. Uh, there's um, kind of like uh, get rid of negative energy. Some could say that's kind of like an exorcism. Um, but yeah, lion, lion dance is, is serious business. There's definitely a... Uh, uh, kind of religious component to it. Like I said, there's a, a deep cultural history to it. Um, and then, like I said, there's the fun, entertaining aspect of it. And uh, nowadays it actually has become a sport. There's competitions in, in China and Malaysia where there's judges and there's specific rules and points. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a diverse subject for sure. Well, uh, it, it sounds pretty extraordinary. It sounds like these are all principles that you have to teach lion dancing with to your kids, and like in the first, like like that, all that has to be ingrained as well. Absolutely, and, and you know, it goes beyond um, just the lion dance. And you know, we're teaching culture, we're teaching um, respect, how to communicate, how to talk to your elders, how to be, you know, in the community, and how to com conduct yourself. You know. Um, Another big component of it is, is eating together. You know, we perform together, we work hard together, but we also share meals and have banquets. Um, but again, the, the training doesn't stop there. You know, there's rules, there's certain ways, table manners, you know, how to act when you're having a meal. So all these things, um, you know, myself and my uncles, the coaches are trying to teach these kids uh, uh, how to be good people in general, not just a good lion dancer. That is that's awesome, and it sounds like an extraordinary uh, experience for the kids to 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 come to at eight years old. I I hope that they feel that way. <laughs> I do. And and are they pretty bonded? I mean, like like just what, what I saw, it seemed like to to be able to do a lot of the stuff that they did. That that they must have an extraordinary working relationship with each other. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, a lion dance team, the head and tail, uh, the level of of cooperation and trust is. Um, very high for, to, to have a successful line dance because it's two humans trying to act as one creature, right? So if there's any kind of disconnect, that, that's really going to show. Um, and is and is that the is is that like you can do lion dancing with as few as two people or as many as this is this is a good point, Bobby. Thank you for for getting here. Uh, the main thing that I would like to say about lion dancing is that it's a lion and not a dragon. We also do dragon dancing, but a dragon is a flying creature. So we hold the the um, the dragon is held high up on poles and is connected connected like a like a dragon or a snake, right? It's very long. It can have this undulating action as it's flowing through the air. The lion is a four-legged creature. So it's just one head player standing up and one tail player bending over. And so when you see that, it's a lion. If you see more than two people and they're holding it up on poles, that's a dragon dance. Gotcha. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the reason being is because the Chinese lion dance costume does not look like a lion, like the typical lion you might see on a safari. And that's because lions were not native to China. And so they only had kind of heard about it or maybe seen one, you know, one time. Uh, so their costumes that they created were more fantastic. Um, and so therefore more resembles a fantastic creature like a dragon. So oftentimes people will say, Hey, there's a dragon dance. Look at the dragons. Um, and, and you know, it's a, it's an easy mistake to make, but once you understand the difference, it, it's easy to see the difference. And that is the kind of valuable insight that you could only get on satellite. That's right. Um, so you saw King of the Yees. Yes. Uh, did any of it feel familiar? Did it, did it, did it speak to you? What did you think of the production? 
Um, it, it, it really did. Um, being a, a Chinese American, um, you know, similar, similar to the, the playwright, um, I, I definitely, uh, definitely understood all the jokes, you know, all the, all the, the little nuances in there. Um, yeah, there was definitely some similarities. Um, and even in this, I mean, it, it kind of was talking about what we talked about with the Lee Association and how membership was dwindling. And so the elders in San Francisco said, hey, how can we get youth involved? Hey, lion dance, right? Um, and in this play, she's saying the same thing, that, that the Yi Association was just all old men and what is, you know, the, the future. So, yeah, there was some definite similarities there. Well, uh, Nick Lee, thanks so much for joining me. Is there anything... Um uh, in the in the future coming up that you want to talk about that you want to promote uh, yeah Chinese New Year is coming up January 22nd this year uh, you can catch us down at Lansu Chinese Garden we'll be doing lion dances there on the opening weekend uh, it is the most beautiful place to see a lion dance um, you know beautiful Chinese garden and then you got the lions and everything um, it's it's gonna be a really awesome celebration Right on, man. Um, and just for myself, I've uh, I've, seen, I've seen them perform, and they were extraordinary. So, Nick Lee, thanks so much for for hanging out with us. Thank you, thank you. We'll be right back with Horatio Law, artist, photographer, and coordinator of the resident artists at the Portland Chinatown Museum. Profile Theater's other podcast, Voices from the Real World, launches its third season in January, featuring members of our community profile program reading their own writing and talking about their lives and experiences. Voices from the Real World is a little peek into the incredible creativity all around us. Community Profile is Profile Theater's free creativity workshop that uses the practice of writing and storytelling to develop authentic community in a dedicated affinity space. Starting in February 2023, Community Profile will be focusing on first-generation Americans and arriving community members. If you or someone you know has just moved to the U.S. or is a first-generation American and would be interested in writing with us, contact Artistic Director Josh Hecht at josh at profiletheater.org. And stay tuned for Season 3 of Voices from the Real World, launching this January. We're back with Horatio Law. Horatio is an artist and photographer. His photos of Chinatown and those of Dean Wong are hanging in the lobby of Profile's production of King of the Yees on loan from the permanent collection of the Portland Chinatown Museum. And now I am here with Horatio Law. Hi. Good afternoon, Horatio. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. All right, um, I'm super excited to have you. Uh, I've seen your work and thought it was gorgeous. Oh, thank um, you. Can you tell us a little bit about your photography, like like how you got into it and what you're trying to say with, with your work that you do? Uh, very interesting, because uh, I'm a different kind of artist before I do my mm. photography, which has happened in the last three years, uh, a little bit before when COVID shutdown started. Uh, I started doing street photography, walking around Portland. Uh, my other job is a public artist. I do public sculpture in public space. And uh, I'm sort of taking a break and um, sort of started working with photography. And I've always liked photography, but it was never a main feature of my artwork. I have used photograph for various projects, but it's only a part of it. And this is the first time I use straight photography. And uh, one of the reason I started taking photographs was uh, because of COVID shutdown, I needed exercise. So I've been doing a lot of walking as my exercise. And as usual, I get bored pretty quickly, just walking and dull. Uh, so I took out my cell phone and started taking photographs of things that interest me. And before I know it, I just Doing it, uh, doing the walking for the photography rather than doing the photography for the walking. So uh, it's just sort of ev uh, evolved uh, very naturally. But I, what I uh, discover is that I have a lot of uh, interest in finding things that people don't notice. And uh, so I often feature those image, subject, 
uh, scenery uh, that we might walk by every day and not paying attention. And so I just zoom in with my camera, and then suddenly I found it really interesting to look at. And the more I do it, the more I see. So it's sort of snowballing. That sounds amazing. Um, uh, how, are you a Portland native? Are you are you from around here, or did you come here for someplace else? I was born and raised in Hong Kong. I left Hong Kong with my family when I was 16. We immigrated to United States and lived in New York for my teenager years. And then I uh, went to school on the East Coast and then went back to New York to work. And then eventually I got interested in the arts. And then I started studying uh, visual arts and moved to the Midwest to get my graduate degree. And then eventually I went up in Portland. Uh, so how did you choose Portland? I got here because I was awarded uh, artist in residency at the uh, former uh, Oregon School of Art and Craft, uh, which later became the Oregon College of Art and Craft, and now it's uh, gone. It's, uh, the school have um, defunct, and uh, now there's no more. And so... Uh, I always have loved the school and uh, because he, it brought me to Portland because of this art residency program. I get to know a lot of artists right away. I got to be in the school environment full of really enthusiastic art students. And uh, right after graduate school, where we just basically spent day and night doing artwork, and now uh, in the beautiful place like the Oregon College Art and Craft. It was a, a beautifully landscape environment. I get to rest and I got to use a studio whenever I want to. So it was a wonderful introduction to the DIY kind of uh, Portland environment when I first came into. Um, so I have a, a deep love for the school. I'm very sad it is gone. and But it also introduced me uh, to the uh, uh, important of bringing artists into uh, an environment uh, when artists can practice their craft and other people get to watch them and learn from them. And so um, that was part of the reason I brought the artist residency to the Portland Chinatown Museum, uh, which uh, now we're hosting three artists in residence uh, uh, every year for two years. Great. Um, so uh, you still have family back in New York? I do. I have family in New York City and uh, a sister in Flushing, Queens, and another sister in uh, Westchester. Uh, they both work in the city. And now families still operate a business in Chinatown, New York. Uh, we have a um, music instrument uh, business, and we also teach uh, music lessons, and that was how we survived. And uh, during COVID, there was a very difficult time, and but they went, keep going, and so uh, now they are thriving again. How often do you get back home? Oh, I used to go back more often. Now maybe twice a year. Oh, that's, that's, that's pretty good, though. That's pretty good, though. Um, so tell me, like, what is some of the, like, how is Chinatown in New York different from Chinatown in Portland? It's actually not so different. Now, uh, Chinatown, there is now actually three Chinatowns in New York City. It started out with just one in Manhattan, and eventually there's one in Flushing, Queens, and then uh, another one in Brooklyn. But the old Chinatown in Manhattan is very much like our Chinatown here. Uh, our Chinatown in Portland... Um, got its name, uh, actually, the older, there was an older Chinatown that was in the southwest part of Portland um, at the turn of the century. And because of the Lewis, Lewis and Clark Exposition, uh, we brought a lot of people to Portland. Uh, gentrification started, and uh, the Chinese hmm. were at the southwest waterfront. And guess who, who got displaced? Uh, was the Chinese community. So they started moving toward the um, northwest part of the town, uh, which is Old Town and uh, also Japantown. Uh, but because of World War II, 
the Japanese American in Japan town were all shipped to concentration camp in over the the West, and then suddenly um, their business and their uh, storefront were unoccupied. So a lot of the Chinese uh, businesses move into more Chinese businesses move into those area, and it actually was called um, New Chinatown slash Japan Town back then. And now um, over over time, we just call it Chinatown. So there's a layer history. Uh, in Old Town Chinatown, and you go back further. There's also other uh, ethnic groups, uh, including African American, uh, who were working working as Pullmans uh, that come with the railroad, and they live in Old Town Chinatown as well. And mm-hmm. you know, you go research a history. There's a lot more ethnic group in Old Town Chinatown. Um, can you tell me, like, uh, because we can obviously see your work at King of the Yees in the lobby, along with uh, Dean Wong. Um, uh, what was the philosophy, what was the perspective that you were trying to capture in, your, in, the, in the work in those pictures? Uh, you see Dean Wong's work, and Dean Wong is, uh, grew up in Seattle, Chinatown, and he's passionate about uh, the people and the business in, in Chinatown, uh, in Seattle, and then he also branched out into uh, all the West Coast Chinatowns. Uh, so he come with a, a place of passion of, uh, uh, of showing the people and how they live uh, in Chinatowns. Um, my perspective is more just like my other subject matters, is where every anything that's overlooked. So you see the the images. There are two images of uh, of uh, perspective. Like uh, there's one of a um, discarded sleeping bag in Old Town Chinatown, uh, left by some of the houseless people. Uh, ordinary, it's just debris, but that caught my eye that day, and it's. It's like a, a beautiful uh, object that we rediscover. Uh, another one is the the bronze lion in, near the Chinatown gate. And normally people look at it straight on, and I kind of look at it in a very oblique angle. And so you kind of recognize it, but it's an unusual angle that uh, I'm hoping that will bring appreciation uh, to people not to overlook everyday things. Right. And then there's a, a very quiet portrait of Darcel uh, in one of the uh, pieces uh, where Darcel, do you, you know Darcel, right? The, in, the drag queen? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, she's famous in Old Town. And uh, this is like maybe two years ago. Uh, the city was honoring Darcel and her business and renaming one of the streets in Old Town in her name. <laughs> and so uh, that also occurred during Chinese New Year. So uh, I caught Darcel in a very quiet, contempta- uh, contemplative moment where she was leaning against the lamppost in her beautiful red uh, fake fur coat against a red um, lamppost, waiting for the Chinese lion to show up to pay tribute to her. Uh, so that was one of my uh, very beloved portraits of her. Yeah, and you don't you don't really think about Darcel in quiet moments. No. <laughs> it's, so in a way, this sort of show people this different aspect of things and things that we overlook, things that we don't think about. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, you talked earlier about uh, the resident art- artist program right. at the Time Time Museum. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about the artists that are being featured in the next couple of months? Sure. Uh, uh, first, uh, just a little bit of history of the residency program, Sounds if great. we have time. Uh, three or four years ago, before the museum was started, I worked with the uh, previous executive director of the Portland Chinatown Museum, uh, Jackie Peterson, and we always have the idea of creating an artist residency uh, in the museum uh, to bring artists into an environment where they have a chance to look at history in a close-up way, looking at artifacts and objects. And through their perspective and their sensibility, we're hoping that the artists will connect us with history and bring the younger generation people to the museum because um, a lot of time history is kind of dead if we don't look at it, if we don't 
bring new perspective to it. So that was the uh, the the beginning of the idea of the residency program, and then we apply, and we are fortunate to to receive a grant from uh, Oregon Family Fund uh, Community Foundation, uh, the Creative Heights Grant, uh, which funded us for two years. Uh, artist resident artist residency program, and we get to select three artists to bring them to the museum to spend each spend two months in the museum, and then from their experience, they would create some work for us, and then we uh, accumulate it in a show at the end of the year, which we now uh, just put up our first year residency show. Great. Um, so I, I just want to uh, before we wrap up. Uh, where else can we see your work? Oh, um, my work is uh, mostly public artwork. You can see it at uh, Gateway Gateway Discovery Park. That's one of the pieces. Uh, and then uh, I just finished the Seattle Ace Memorial uh, sculpture called... Um, Oh, what would you call it? the AM? Right, this overall program is called the AM Ace Memorial Pathway Program, and uh, I have one piece of uh, sculpture in the Cal Anderson Park in Seattle. Uh, before I forget, I want to mention the three names of the artist residents at the Chinatown Museum: uh, Su Ju Wang, um, Alex Chu, uh, and Sam Rojas Chua. Man, good luck to all of them. I, I look forward to seeing their work. Thank you. Um, so have you returned to sculpture? Uh, I'm still working on photo photographs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also have other uh, public art projects that's ongoing, uh, also in Seattle. So it uh, so keep me busy. Right on. <laughs> Well, Horatio Law, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bobby, for inviting uh, me. Really extraordinary work and... Um, a uh, really generous conversation, and we appreciate it. Thank you. And that is it for this edition of Satellite Beyond the Page. Thank you to Lava Alapai, Nick Lee, and Horatio Law. And thank you to our, our production team, Jamie M. Ray, line producer, Robert A. K. Gagno, sound engineer, Matt Ween, composer, Sam Mowry, recording engineer, and this was recorded at the Willamette Radio Workshop in Portland, Oregon which exist on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them, and we honor their descendants who live on. And I am Bobby Bermea. Thank you for joining us for Satellite Beyond the Page. (laughs) 